Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being in the house of the Lord tonight. I do hope you have your Bible. I don't have a handout for you. I, I do not. I, I wanted to, but I did not have enough time to prepare that. And uh, praise God. I, uh, I am very sorry about that. But there's nothing uh, preventing you from taking shorthand or short notes. <laughs> Oh, glory. All right. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7. We'll begin there. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me do, to do thy will, O God. And uh, the writer of Hebrews here is quoting from Psalms chapter 40, verse 7. It's the same words exactly and it's really referring to Jesus and Paul and I believe is the writer of Hebrews uh, is writing about how that the Old Testament had to be done away with because it was imperfect if it was perfect he said if it was if it was able to take care of the matter of conscience and cleanse it then the Old Testament uh, practice of bringing a sacrifice uh, on high holidays not to mention for sins would have been unnecessary. And because the Old Testament blood sacrifice and temple and tabernacle plan was not enough to do away with sin and to address it in our conscience, then there would not have been a need for a new covenant. And so the Old Testament prophesies concerning the coming of Jesus that now I come. So it's the plan of God. Verse 7, then I said, Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do thy will, O God. But I want to focus on that one segment in the middle of verse that says, in the volume of the book. My subject tonight is part three of the series on the basics of Christianity, the book, the Bible. And I'll try to really come forth, not really from a high point. It's going to be very basic with the help of the Lord. And uh, brother, uh, brother Rob, give me a little more volume, if you would, on the monitors, because I don't hear myself, and I don't want to lose my voice. I deeply appreciate all our sound folks. Let's pray, shall we? Lord God Almighty, we thank you for your goodness, your blessings. We thank you for this word that you have given unto us. You said, thy word is forever settled in heaven, O Lord. And you said, Lord, that you have magnified thy word above thy name. And it's that word that we turn to tonight, Lord. And we pray that you would give us illumination or understanding and that you would lead us and guide us and bless us thereby and strengthen us in our faith and help us to prepare ourselves better for your coming. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And let the church say amen. amen. Thank you for standing. God bless you. You may be seated. Brother Gary, I'm glad you're here. I know you had surgery last week and you're still hurting and you're, you chose to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. That's commendable. And uh, amen. If you've got a communicable disease and you're contagious, stay home. <laughs> but if you're in pain and you can bear it and come to church, well, it's just as good to, to suffer pain in church as it is at home. And here you can be edified and you can be blessed and you can have fellowship and amen you don't have to bear it alone the bible says for if one member of the body hurts everybody else does and we feel it and i don't mean literally but you know what i'm talking about now we have sympathy in here amen uh, so but don't abuse it <laughs> uh, that's another chapter praise god thank you jesus the origin of the Bible is what I want to focus on here tonight. I'm so glad to have the Robert Chef family here with us tonight. Sister Christina and the kids, they're still here. They, they raised all their PINs. And uh, they're just waiting on uh, the, the missions uh, uh, executive board to decide when they can leave and go back to Hungary. In the meantime, they are our special guests, and I'm so glad that they're here with us. Amen. And the children. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. All right. Uh, the origin of the Bible is what I like to focus on and, uh, in very basic ways, uh, how we got this book and what this is. Um, 
and I, I, I think some of this information will be useful for all of us, and maybe you know some things about the Bible already, and that's good. You should. But uh, I, I believe I have a little something for everybody. You know, it's difficult to study the Bible without knowing its history and knowing uh, what it is and, and how it came to us and how it came to be in one volume that you and I carry together with us. And uh, it's, it's, it's the word Bible that we said, the Bible. The word itself is, is from the Greek meaning, biblos, meaning the book, the book. And it's two places in the Bible, Old and New Testament, is referred to as the book. And we read it, Psalms 40, verse 7, and Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, the book. And it consists of two parts, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the New Testament was written in Greek. And the Old Testament manuscripts, and when I say manuscripts, it's called a manuscript because manu, it means hand, you know, like manual labor, right? Man is the la main, of course, in French, and in that one, it's the main, la main, la main, the French. Amen. It's the, it's the hands. Amen. Uh, and so, so it's the hand, manual, it's, it's handwriting. A manuscript is a writing by hand. And, uh, uh, and script, man, there's something. Well, we don't want to go to etymology, do we? Amen. Schreiben in German and Sister Martha, right? Hallelujah. Cleave in French. And you have the root of the scribe, cleave, and scribe in English and the Germanic. And it's all there still. Hallelujah. And so, so the manuscripts uh, in times past, uh, the, these, these Old Testament manuscripts were, were written in Hebrew and and, uh, and the Hebrew language is so interesting. One of the oldest languages in the world. And some of the brethren texted me the other day, and I couldn't get down to half my lunch hour. They were having to say, what language did God speak to Adam? And I said, good question. The Bible is silent on that. However, we do know that, that Moses, who wrote the Old Testament, uh, wrote the book in Hebrew, and God told him to write it. In fact, uh, we'll get into God. Uh, wrote the first time on the Ten Commandments on the tablets of stone, and he wrote it in Hebrew. So they could all understand it. So, you know, God knows every language, doesn't he? I mean, he created language. Praise God. But Hebrew, and Hebrew language is unique because uh, the Hebrew language does not utilize vowels. And it's only consonants. So can you put that on, Sister, uh, Sister Kayla? If, if you have that, can you see this? Okay, can somebody decipher? That's all one phrase. Uh, if you were to read in Hebrew, this is an English form of, of Hebrew where you're leaving out all the, wow, all the wows, <laughs> all the vowels. That's the Eastern European Hungarian coming out of it. <laughs> v or wa, the vowels. Amen. You know what that is? Can you figure that out? Look at it. That's how Hebrews would read this segment of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You'd put all the vowels in. That's what the Hebrews had to contend with. And all the letters were really not separated. They were all written all out, one after the other. No separation, no punctuation, nothing. Just That's what the Old Testament scriptures were like. Amen. But, of course, when they wrote them, they were also very, very meticulous with it, especially in trans transferring or duplicating uh, uh, writings. They, of course, uh, first began writing on, on the animal skins of, of clean animals. We call the Mosaic Law clean. And they wrote them on those with dye. And, they, and the scribes took special care to make sure that every letter and every word was, was uh, exact and to the specifications of the previous one. And uh, as you know, uh, the scribes, when they came to the name of God, for example, they put down their quill and they, and they went and washed their hands and they came back, picked up the pen, and wrote the name of the Lord or Elohim or Yahweh. Amen. That's how meticulous care they took to, uh, to write and to transcribe the scriptures from one copy to another. And that's how we got the Old Testament, believe it or not. Now, there are 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. And this one book that you and I hold our hand is a compilation of the 66 books 
are all of the Old Testament manuscripts. And this is what makes up our single volume of the Bible. 66 books. Amen. 27 in the uh, New Testament and 39 books in the Old Testament. Hallelujah. In the Old Testament, written in a period of 1,500 years from Genesis through Malachi, uh, it began with Moses writing his first five books and ended with Malachi and all the way through Jesus, the New Testament. Uh, 1,500 years, 1,500 years. And then from the time of Jesus' life, from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John up to the book of Revelation is about another 100 years. And uh, so you have a total of 1,500 plus 100, about 1,600 years it took to produce this Bible that you and I have in one volume today. And although many men wrote this book with a variety of backgrounds, there is no contradiction in their writings. And it's evident from the very beginnings as you read this book that really there's only one true author, and that's God himself. Forty different authors, imagine different backgrounds, different professions, different times and periods in history, uh, and, and yet none of their writings disagree over those 1,600 years of time. And that is miraculous in itself to give us uh, affirmation and faith and confidence that this indeed is the Word of God, and God had His hand on all of the writers who wrote this special book. This is why 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us, all scripture, everybody say all scripture, is given by inspiration of God. And it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. Notice all scripture, all scripture, not just certain words or certain segments, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And uh, this word inspiration literally means God breathed. And, uh, and, and it's, it's important, it's special. It's, in other words, no one came up with this on their own accord. In 2 Peter 1, verse 20 and 21, it says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. And now the Weymouth translation says this, But above all, remember that no prophecy in Scripture will be found to have come from the prophet's own will, but men sent by God spoke as they were impelled by the Holy Spirit. That's moved upon, impelled. It is the same word that's used to, to shove. To, to drive out the same word we mentioned before, that the Bible talks about God drove the man out of the garden. No, he didn't put him in a car and drive him out. He shoved them out. He compelled them, impelled them to leave. And they couldn't uh, do anything but go and move. And that's the kind of the word that God uses in his word when it says, uh, as it, this is God breathed and God moved upon them, impelled them by his spirit. And so it wasn't something that came from their, from their own volition and from their own intellect and their own logic and their own search after God. It was God who decided to reveal himself to them, to speak to them directly in a specific way, in an unmistakable way that they would write exactly what he wanted them to write. And this word of God came to them by revelation. And the revelation is an act of God in itself, revelation, by which God directly communicates truth that was not known before to the human mind. That's what revelation is. It's God communicating to you in a way that you get information that you have not known before. It's not of your own mind that came to you. And so revelation discovers new truth. When God gives you a revelation, you discover a new truth that you've not seen before, that you've not even thought of before, but it comes to you. And while inspiration, on the other hand, is what affirms, it supervises that revelation that you get. And that's really what happened when each of these authors or writers wrote the book. They got a revelation, but then God affirms that with the Spirit, now write it. Amen. Write it. Hallelujah. And the Spirit moved upon them. Praise God. Hallelujah. And so, not, understand, not everything in this Bible came 
to the authors and the writers by revelation. Some things didn't need revelation. For example, uh, the story of the exodus from uh, Egypt by the Israelites. Nobody needed a revelation and telling them or any prophets, hey, write down, you know, I'll give you a revelation of what happened in Exodus. No, that was recorded history. But God included that. By inspiration, God said, write it down. You see, so there are other things in the Bible that were historical events. David and Bathsheba or David and Goliath or something. That did not come by revelation. That was inspiration of the Spirit for the man to write down what God told him to write. So the two are important, revelation and inspiration. Both are important. One, it's where you discover new truth, and the other, inspiration, is that, that, that revelation is affirmed by the manifest presence of God. And uh, revelation, on the other hand, yeah, one example I guess I can think of is Peter and his revelation of, of who Christ is. Jesus said, whom do uh, men say that I, the Son of Man, am. And he said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say you're, you're John, uh, the Baptist, and risen again, and some say you're Jeremiah, but whom say ye? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the embodiment and physical manifestation of the invisible God. And Jesus said, Simon Barjona, uh, flesh and blood has not revealed it to thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That, Peter, is a spiritual revelation. And the inspiration of my word, what I say, what you feel right now is affirming that that revelation is truth and is hence recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. So that's the, the, the relationship between revelation and inspiration and its mechanism and how it works. And so although God inspired godly men to write his words, there are uh, three instances where he directly wrote himself. And one I mentioned to you already. It's where he wrote on the tablets of stone, the first two tablets that, that, uh, that Moses received, God wrote. And then when he, wrote those, uh, when he broke those two tablets of stone and, and threw it at the, uh, at the idol, uh, and, and he, was, he was mad at the people because he, while he was gone, they rose up and played and, and went into fornication and ungodly behavior. He took those stones and he broke them, and God never told him to break it. You'll find the next time <laughs> he goes up to talk to God, uh, God says, okay, now you cut the stones and you're right. <laughs> Amen. I never told you to break those, but it was the first time that God himself wrote with the finger of God. In fact, Exodus chapter 31 verse 18 says, And he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai two tables of testimony, tables of stone written with the finger of God. Brother Rob, are you still back there? Can you help me more on my, on my, my thing? I, I really can't hear myself. My voice is getting weaker. Well... Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. So the finger of God, that's Exodus 31, 18. And then the second time you see it in the book of Daniel 5, 5, it's where uh, judgment comes upon Belshazzar. That time, you know, the son of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, and, and God, uh, as, as, as Belshazzar is in, in his big uh, uh, ceremonial palace hall, and he's drinking and making merry, and, and he, he called in his drunkenness for the, the, the vessels of the temple from Jerusalem to be brought so he can defile them by drinking wine out of them. And at that point, God's judgment came. He saw the handwriting on the wall. He saw the hand of a man writing on the wall. And God told him, your, your, your kingdom is you weighed in the balance. Your kingdom is going to be taken from this night, this night, and given to your Persians, or the Medes, rather. In any case, that's the second time that God wrote. And the third evidence that we have of God ever writing was he was manifest in flesh. Jesus in John chapter 8, when the woman was caught in the act of adultery, and they brought it before Jesus. What do you want to do? Moses said in the law that, uh, that when we catch such a one, we ought to stone her to death. Now, what do you say? And Jesus stooped down and he began to write. And nobody knows what was written. That was not recorded. And the rule of thumb is, uh, where the Bible is silent, we are silent. But we wrote. But it was enough to bring conviction upon 
those present because the next thing you know, when Jesus said, let him without sin cast the first stone, they start dropping their rocks and walked out. The only three times that God ever wrote. Other than that, he wrote through the, the people upon whom he moved with his spirit and impelled to write and to write the words that he felt were important. Now, when you look at the Old Testament and its organization, I think if you've had Search of Truth or Exploring God's Word, you know where I'm coming from. Uh, but it's, it's uh, enough to understand that the Jewish people divide the Old Testament in a different way than we do. Uh, in the same books, same exact books, but they divide them differently. In fact, they combine some of the books into one volume in their categorization of the Old Testament scriptures. But for you and I, <clears throat> and uh, for simplicity, we see that uh, the, the Old uh, Testament, we divide into the law. And that's uh, five books, five books. Uh, then there's 12 books of history. And then there's five books of poetry and literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, uh, and so on. And then the prophets, uh, five major and uh, 12 minor, total of 17. Comes out a total of, uh, of 39 books in the Old Testament. And I mentioned again that Jews had the same Old Testament books, but organized them differently into 24 volumes. And when you look at the Jewish division, they divide them into three segments, the law, Again, the Mosaic five books, the Pentateuch, uh, meaning five. In Greek, it's, it's uh, Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, that's the law. And, of course, and, and interestingly, of those five to the Jew, the, the book of Genesis and Deuteronomy were the most common, the most important to them, the most often quoted and studied and read. And then the second segment of the Old Testament Jewish uh, division are the prophets. So there's the law and the prophets and the holy writings, those three categories. And so after the law, the prophets and, their, and the prophets themselves divided into three categories, the former and the latter and the minor prophets. The former prophets are Joshua, Judges, and Samuel. And that's not Samuel 1 and 2, but 1 Samuel. See, they combine the books there. The latter prophets is Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, and Ezekiel. And the minor prophets, which is a book of 12 in one volume. And then, of course, the holy writings, which we refer to as poetry, some of the history books like Job, Psalms, and Proverbs, and Esther, Nehemiah, Daniel, all those. Those were in the divisions in the Hebrew style. Now, when you look at the Old Testament story, uh, it is, I think, quite interesting. Uh, I think if you've been in church for a while, you know exactly what it is, but I'm reviewing, if nothing else, and for those online who have not had this before, and those who are... are who have never had a Bible study, uh, would probably uh, have an interest in knowing uh, this particular lesson, especially uh, in understanding and knowing how the Old Testament and New Testament came about and how it came to be in one volume. So Old Testament then is this narrative of one unbroken story. It's God's relationship with mankind, and in particularly one group, the Jewish nation, the Jewish people. That's what the Old Testament is all about. And in Genesis, beginning with the first book of the Bible, we have an account of the creation of the world, how the environment, how society, and how human beings came to be in their present condition that we find ourselves in now. A ruined world due to sin and the fall of mankind. We learned about the dysfunctional society and humans who became doomed to die. Physically speaking. Now, of course, there's a spiritual aspect of that as well. And in Genesis, we also read about a man called Abraham, chosen by God to be the father of a nation and through whom uh, God would offer salvation to all people. And indeed, he would, because through the lineage of Abraham and his descendants came Christ Jesus to be the Savior of the world. And the rest of the Old Testament is really continuing this narrative and this development of, of man's family from a wandering tribe into a, a powerful and rich nation by the name of Israel. 
and, uh, and, and although it, it seems complicated to read at times, I know uh, the, the Old Testament is really just one story describing God's relationship to the Jewish people and their role in preparing this cultural and historical stage and the appearance of Jesus Christ. And so when everything was just right, in fact, Paul says it in Galatians, at the fullness of time, uh, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. So God had this whole narrative already in his mind written out before he even came to the, in, into the book and recorded. But, but the recording is all the thoughts of God and his plans. And, and he said it to us ahead of time, which is why we, we have to regard this. As so imagine this, folks. These are the thoughts of God. These are God's thoughts. It's not Peter's thoughts. It's not Isaiah's thoughts. It was just a vessel. These are the words and thoughts of God. And he is giving you and I privy inside information to his thinking. And he reveals to us his plan from the beginning to the end. That's what you're holding in your hand. That's how valuable this is. Where is God? Why doesn't he say anything? He, he has. Read his word. Listen to his voice. Praise God. And so it's the plan. And we see how, again, this plan was for him to come in human form and to save the world. Praise God. Now, when we look at the New Testament, we see that eight men wrote this book. 32 men wrote the Old Testament, 39 books. 32 men. Everybody say 32 men. 39 books. And the New Testament is 27 books. Eight men. Eight. How many? Eight. Eight men. Hallelujah. Praise God. And so it's, 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 it's also a, a short story, just like the old, uh, and it's given to us in various books. Now, the story tells of the, in the Gospels, the, the birth, uh, the life, and ministry, and the miracles, and the teachings, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it also tells us of the establishment of the first of the early church and how it spread from Israel to all parts of the earth by his disciples and by his, his, uh, his people who believe on him. And, uh, and there were many accounts written of Jesus' life. Uh, but the New Testament canon, and when I mean the canon, it, 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 it refers to the official, accepted, uh, inspired books. And there are only 27 that was, that, that was decided by the church, 27 that were inspired uh, to be included in this one volume that eventually uh, uh, created and put together, believe it or not, about the fourth century or so almost around 400 A.D. before the first came to be. Amen. And so the New Testament, uh, the New Testament divisions for us are we're fourfold. It's the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, four books. Then you have one history book, and that's uh, the book of Acts. Then you have the uh, Pauline epistles. Now, Pauline is not the name of a girl. It's, I mean, the epistles of Paul. And uh, some say he wrote only 13. I say he wrote 14 because I believe he wrote the book of Hebrews also. There's no clear evidence for that except the inside content and the language and, and his approach and his manner and style and everything. I have my reasons why I believe that he wrote Hebrews. Not only that, no one was more qualified than Paul to take on naming the differences and highlighting those crucial differences between uh, Old Testament Judaism and New Testament uh, Christianity, especially one who was uh, taught at the feet of Gamaliel, a, a, uh, a, a rabid Pharisee who was converted by personal revelation by, of Jesus Christ, and then he wrote 13 other books, and I don't see anybody more qualified than all of the apostles to have addressed those issues that he addressed in the book of Hebrews, uh, although he doesn't say in there that it is me, uh, you know, Paul writing this to you. But in any case, the Pauline so you have the Gospels, four books, one history book, book of Acts, the Pauline epistles, I believe 14, and then there are seven general epistles or letters. When I say epistle, an epistle is not the wife of an apostle. Okay? 
An epistle is not the wife of an epistle. is just simply a letter. Amen. And uh, so, so 14 letters by Paul, and we call them really books, because when you see how long each letter is, they, you, it can be a book. And uh, so, so 14 books by Paul, and then eight, rather, uh, uh, seven general epistles, and then one book of prophecy as the book of Revelation. And eight uh, writers of the New Testament all together, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there's Paul, James, and Jude. Amen. Eight people wrote the entire New Testament, and all of them Jewish people. This Bible, Old and New Testament, is purely a Jewish product. Hallelujah. You see how important it was in the plan of God to call Abraham and create a nation who would be a safety deposit box of his truths, and not only to, to protect it and to keep it and guard it, but also to manifest it to the Gentile world. In fact, uh, in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible talks about in Isaiah how they are to be a light to the Gentiles. And that's why God created uh, the nation of Israel. There's no other people like that in the history of the world. Israel and the nation of Israel, the Jewish people, are the only people specifically created by God for a specific purpose. What an incredible thing. And we see God's plan unfolding even now because in the last days he had, uh, you know, he has plans for them. And, uh, and prophetically, they are a nation again after Jesus said in many places that they will come back together as a nation uh, after he judged them in A.D. 70, uh, less than a generation after they crucified Jesus. For almost 2,000 years, they were totally off the, the map. Uh, of, of world history, and all of a sudden, 2,000 years later, they're back again. And again, I, I, I know I preached on it before, but I can't help it. That's one of the most incredible signs and, and, and verifications of the, of the prophecies of the Bible come to light before us. And uh, that should give us pause and, and understand that we are in the last days. And Jesus said all the things that are going to come to pass when this country is reborn again, is happening. And uh, so th that also affirms the Bible and the fact that it was indeed the Spirit of God that moved upon the writers to produce this book that God intended for you and I to have. Now, aside from the book of Acts and the Gospels, the epistles were written by the apostles and the disciples uh, to the churches to teach doctrine, to encourage them, and to uh, teach them how to practice their faith. Paul said it this way to Timothy, that thou mightest know how to behave thyself in the house of God. Hallelujah. That's a pretty good uh, message in a nutshell and what, what the New Testament is all about after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and, and Acts. It's about how we should live, how should we govern ourselves, how we should behave ourselves as Christians. Amen. Now, I want to uh, talk a little bit about the New Testament canon, the the authenticity and, and how they decided what books should be included in the New Testament. I think it's important because the question comes of this, how, how did the apostles and, and the disciples uh, decide which books actually belonged in the New Testament? And so th the books make up the New Testament. They're called the canon from the Greek word a reed, a reed, which is also meaning a rod, it's, it's a measuring rod because the Old Testament used to have rods that used to cut and as a certain standard to, of measurement. And so uh, when you're talking about canon, literally from Greek it means a reed or a measuring rod. And a reference to the Bible, it refers to those things which, which measures up the things that are written. And when it's examined, that if it's measured, if it, if, if, it, if it meets the standard of measurement of authenticity and God's inspiration, does it pass the test? Let me see. Let me take the rod and measure. And so the, the apostles and the early church, they measured these books. They, they, they looked at them, read them, and, and said, which are the ones that are to be included in this? Now, there was no formal meaning to that, believe it or not. And I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, there was no council. There was no... Uh, official place or, or means whereby they got together, but it came through time and through a process by which this book was finally produced. But it, that didn't come until like 367 A.D. But at first, 
the church didn't have any motivation or really any impetus to, to, to do such a thing, to, to collect all the letters that were written by the apostles and, and to incorporate them into one book. And though many letters were written. In fact, in fact even Paul mentions, as you recall, in the, in the letters to the Corinthians, that, uh, that the, the letter that I wrote to you before, and he refers to that. And, and so we only have First and Second uh, Corinthians, but it really First Corinthians is Second Corinthians, and and Second Corinthians is Third Corinthians. Meaning, it was Paul's second and third letter. But the first letter is not preserved. It was not uh, in in the will of God and the plan of God to preserve that. It didn't have that inspiration and that importance that it should have been included in Scripture. And so there are other letters also uh, that were passed along and read. In fact, if you remember, um, you know, I believe even the seven letters to the churches of Asia, they were not only for those seven churches, it's to circulate them among all the churches. And Paul, even in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when he talks about hair and communion, he talks to him at the end, uh, when he finishes the subject of hair, he says, and, and, and this is, this is the, our rule, and, and if anybody else uh, has any objection to it, there are no other rules, and all the churches feel the same way about it. All the other churches feel the same. Well, how do they know? Because this was all circulated among all of them, and these issues and subjects were discussed by all. Okay? So this measuring rod, the canon, uh, and, and how a particular letter uh, lines up and measures up uh, to, to the truth uh, of, and authenticity of God's inspiration. And again, there were many manuscripts that were written. And so at, at first, the church didn't have a real motivation to, to put these into one book. But the, there are certain things that occurred that caused them to want to do that. And I believe really all along, God had... Uh, his hand on us all together at, at the right time it came to be. Now, I know this one thing. If you look at the book of Acts, it was the will of God for the church, the early church, to start evangelizing the Jewish nation, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. And yet it took years before they went from chapter 2 of Acts, when the Holy Ghost was poured out, that this gospel was taken from the Jewish people to the, to the half-Jews, the Samaritans. And he took persecution to do that. And same thing with the Gentiles. Then you had about another 10 years that passed before Cornelius had a vision, an angelic manifestation, and Peter went there. 17 years or so from the day of Pentecost to Acts chapter 10. And they've been dragging their feet. And it's probably the same thing that occurred with the Scriptures. They saw no real need to collect these manuscripts and put them in one volume. And really, there's several reasons why this probably was so. First, most of the apostles in the first century were alive. John was around until like 100 AD. And so while they had all these apostles around and they were writing letters left and right, they, didn't, they weren't worried about, uh, about uh, you know, what was uh, right or wrong, who was anybody preaching false doctrines? There wasn't any. They had the apostles there, and they would listen to them and say, yeah, that's wrong, this is right, that's wrong, this is right. See, and they trusted that. They had the early church apostles and witnesses with them. But they also thought that Jesus would be coming back in their lifetime. And when you think that way, you think, well, why do I have to write this down? Why do you want to keep a record of it? They weren't thinking long-term. They didn't think that this thing's going to last 2,000 years. So in their own mind, you know, Jesus come. In fact, some had believed that he's already come. And that's what he's writing in, in, in 1 Thessalonians 4. I mean, don't believe it. Jesus has not come back yet. He's not forgotten you, not leave you behind. Amen. <clears throat> don't believe those that are preaching to you uh, wrongfully. Uh, he's coming back. And when he does, it's coming in a moment, a twinkling of an eye. And the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So uh, and there's other places in Scripture where, where the Christians really thought that it's going to be in their lifetime. Isn't that just like us, though? I mean, it wasn't the same way with, with Adam and Eve. <clears throat> Hallelujah. Genesis chapter 5, you know, after in Genesis 3, God tells Adam and Eve, there's going to see the woman that's going to, 
provide that, that way back into the garden or the presence of God. As soon as, as, as uh, Eve bears birth to, uh, to Cain, oh, for I have gotten a man child from the Lord. Here it is. Here's the Messiah. We're going back. They said, uh-uh. They didn't know that this is long-term. God goes through a long process because he wants to populate heaven with millions and zillions of people. It wasn't, this, all this wasn't just for her and Adam. It was for all of us. Amen. And it goes through time and through a process. But the early church, hallelujah, we're leaving this world. Jesus is coming back. The trumpet's going to sound, and we're going out of here. Yeah, but they didn't know they're going by the way of the grave. <laughs> the dead in Christ shall rise first. Amen. And they're going to be there when the trumpet sounds. But they thought it's going to be their lifetime. So why write and keep records and pass it on to the next generation when, hey, he's coming in my lifetime? You know, we got to get the mind of God. And even now, we can't, you know, we know we're in the last days. But, but we've got to act like he's not coming for another 100 years. We've got to live like we just got to be ready. But we've got to keep on working and doing the work of God. Praise God. <clears throat> but then, as I mentioned, at the certain events that took place, uh, which, which required them to begin collecting and thinking about preserving the teachers, the teachings of the Lord and of the apostles. Because, first of all, false teachers started arising. And Paul preached about the next chapter 20, remember? He called the Ephesians together and said, I, I, I preach to you night and day with tears, but I'll tell you there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing that will arise from within you, and they'll take many disciples after them. They'll be false teachers. Look out for these. I'll tell you, I'm going to be praying for you. And, and you can just imagine what, what he felt and what he thought. But, but Paul said these false teachers, and they did come. And as these certain false teachers would come, all of a sudden the early church began to realize, you know what? It'd be important for us to get, our, our, get the writings of the, of the elders together and uh, start using that measuring rod and applying it to the writings uh, so that we would know what is right and what is wrong. But false teachers posed a great threat. In fact, uh, the canon of Marcion was one of those things in 140 A.D. Uh, he was a false teacher by the name Marcion. Uh, he rejected the Old Testament as inspired. He only accepted the book of Luke and all the Pauline epistles. And he put out a volume of those things and said, this is it. This is all there. This is the official canon. And the church said, wait a minute. That is totally wrong. That's totally false. You can't. That is wrong. That is false teaching. And he, incredibly, that, that gospel, of this, this, this canon of Marcion, spread far and wide in his time. In fact, it was around almost a thousand years, even to the Middle Ages. Not, not, not very predominantly, but it was present. Um, and so, so this is one of those things, uh, uh, the, the circulation of false teaching that, that caused the early church and the leaders to start doing something about it. And then there came persecution against the church. And, uh, and this brought forth a question well, uh, what, uh, which, which scriptures are very important? The reason being because, for example, under the Roman emperor Diocletian, who lived about 296, somewhere around there, uh, A.D., uh, he made it a capital crime, which means you will die if you were caught with a copy, a copy of any scriptures from the Bible, any written copy, a segment of it or a book of it, whatever you, could, whatever you had, because Diocletian and the way of the history, I was reading on that, on that guy and that period, um, he, he was concerned about the, the, uh, the denial of, of Christians of uh, emperor worship and uh, how that it would potentially cause a division in his empire. It was already falling apart, and he didn't want to exacerbate that by Christianity and, and, uh, and, and not accepting emperor worship. And so he made it a capital crime for Christians to have any, or anyone for that matter, have any kind of scripture. It's a capital crime. So the question says, what scriptures are true that would be worth dying for? If I want to die, I don't want to die for something that's false. I don't want to die for false doctrine. What is true? What is worth dying for? 
And so that was another thing. Uh, and so many of these uninspired books and letters were destroyed. They began to, uh, to, to uh, be destroyed by the church wherever they were found. And they got rid of a lot of this junk that was floating around because now, you know, a lot of people were confused. And then they didn't want somebody needless to give their life and sacrifice to something that was not of God. And then there was the codex form issue that came up. So not only persecution and not, only, not just the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, the manuscript and the, uh, the code of, uh, of Marcion, the gospel of Marcion, but there was the codex. The codex form was uh, a, a almost what you would call a book today, but was uh, several pages put together on a certain topic. And it's not like animal skins, more, more parchment than anything, but it was the first attempt by, among the first attempts, to put uh, writings together on a certain subject and related to that one page after another, either sewed together on the binding or, or whatever, but, but it was called a codex. It was a new style, and it became very popular. And, uh, and they, then, they, then they used that instead of a scroll. And so when this codex format became popular, uh, it brought the question, then which letters and writings or books should we put in this codex form that's becoming popular to read? Because Christians will want their own codex form. You know, just like today, we buy books off the shelf. We go to Barnes & Noble or you order from Amazon, you can buy a book. And so imagine there's no Bible yet on one volume. They say, okay, now, if we're going to put a codex, which books are we going to include in it? And that was one of the things that brought forth a motivation from the church to begin looking at the writings of the apostles and uh, uh, these other uh, letters that, that they had before them uh, to, to discern uh, which are the inspired books. And again, there was no official meeting uh, where the church reviewed all the material and said, well, this is, this isn't, whatever. But quite the contrary, you know, the early church just uh, accepted really those works that were popularly read already. Because let's face it, many of the writings of, of the apostles and the gospels even, they were copied and recopied and passed along. And, and they have stood the test. They've been along for quite a while without putting them into single volume. Uh, later on, even the book of Revelation uh, it, it's the same way, but they were not put together in one volume until much, much later on. But given these, these uh, developments, you know, the false teachers uh, and uh, the canon of Marcion and the persecution and the codex form uh, and its popularity made the early church to, uh, to, to begin to look at uh, the writings and see which would be important to include in one volume. But the early church did use certain principles uh, and guidelines in, in looking at, uh, at what should go into, uh, into one volume. One was obviously authorship. Who wrote? Who wrote that book or who wrote that letter? Um, a man uh, at that time who was, who was considered to be an inspired speaker, well, they'd assume that automatically that his writing would be inspired. So they started there. Uh, and they considered his inspiration. And so for this reason, the writings of the apostles, for example, were immediately accepted because they were with Jesus. They, they were with him for three and a half years, about. <clears throat> and uh, they heard his teachings. They were eyewitnesses. And their writings automatically were accepted as gospel, pardon the pun. And uh, they were quickly accepted in, into the canon of Scripture. And also, men associated with the apostles were accepted and their writings into the Bible as canon. For example, Luke had his association with Mark, excuse me, with Paul. And then Mark had his association with Peter. And because these men were closely associated with these apostles who were very renowned and, and stalwarts and pillars of the church, their writings were automatically included and accepted as, as authentic and inspired uh, by God. And uh, then, of course, James. He was called the brother of Jesus. And... Uh, and, and he was automatically accepted in his book of James, uh, whom Martin Luther felt that well, should not have been in the canon. <laughs> he really believed that James should not be in the Bible, amen, because of James's teaching on faith uh, versus works. And uh, that's another story. In any case, the book of James was included in the Christian canon. And then besides authorship, they looked at the value of the book whenever they looked at a writing. And uh, in some cases, a book or a letter had a name attached to it that was 
uh, the name of a popular apostle, somebody that was renowned and they knew, but, uh, but really it was uh, an attempt by a, a bogus writer to, you know, who wanted a name for himself to attach the, the name of Peter to, for example, the one wrote uh, a book uh, called The Acts of Peter. He, Peter never wrote that book, but this man wrote uh, that it was uh, an account of Peter's ministry. And uh, so, so it, it was not really a difficult task. Many of the scholars said that it, it was easy to discern between the fake and the real. Quite easy. In fact, when you look at one writing, it was called the Gospel of Thomas. Uh, it was uh, related in that book, a false uh, letter, a false writing that wanted to be included in the, in the Gospel. said that Jesus at one point made sparrows out of mud uh, on the Sabbath day, and, and uh, he was rebuked for that. And, and in response, he just said, you know, go ahead and fly away. And, and the birds just uh, came to life, and they flew away. I mean, that just doesn't ring true with the style of the other stories and, and, and the record of, of the Gospels. And there's another story where Jesus miraculously lengthened a board to fit a certain table that his father was making in, in, in uh, his father Joseph's shop. Um, anyway, so in other words, uh, it was fairly easy to tell the real from the fakes and... Uh, Anyway, the inspired books had this, that this harmony of thought, and uh, it had uh, accuracy, it had a purpose, it had a, a certain style, and uh, it was uh, accurate, both historically and, and theologically. And many of these false things were not, and it, I think it's quite evident. So, and even today, I have to tell you, you have to be careful what book you read. Just because it says Jesus on it doesn't mean that it's real. It doesn't mean that it's sound doctrine. Uh, we have the same issue today, yeah, so uh, you have to be careful. Amen. And then, of course, besides the value of the book and, and the authorship, they looked at circulation. The church, again, didn't decide which books were suitable and which weren't, but they were already looking at, at, at books and letters which were collected uh, that had been traditionally accepted and recirculated already. It had a track record. So they're just compiling and putting everything into a book that's already been accepted and already been known. Hallelujah. And then they put it in one volume that never happened before. So no new book was introduced. Only those letters and volumes that had wide circulation and acceptance after a long period of study. And uh, the, the review, amen, were included. So the canon was approved about 300 years after uh, the first writings began to circulate, and uh, I really believe that God had his hand on it, and, and uh, we have this Bible today because he guided the whole process from beginning to the end. Amen. And we also have to, cons we all have to consider what the Bible says, says about itself. The Bible says in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, well, first of all, before that, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. We read it earlier. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then in uh, 2 Peter 1, 20, 21, we read that too, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation, for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. It's the Word of God. God moved upon men, but we believe that it is indeed the Word of God. There's Many other things that I could uh, cite, uh, internal agreement and internal evidence, archaeology, historical proof, not to mention Greek manuscripts. Uh, you know, we have more manuscripts, both in Hebrew and in Greek, to the Old and New Testament than any other book in the world. And yet skeptics and others uh, still denigrate it, uh, still fight it. Uh, but I think that's one of the reasons why this book has proven itself to be indeed the Word of God. The 2,000 years of denigration, at least the New Testament, the attacks it had from governments and skeptics and philosophers and, and so-called scholars and, 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 uh, and atheists, still here. 
making a great impact on the hearts of people who are open to it. Shall we stand? It's the Word of God. It has an incredible ability to survive, unlike many other books, and uh, it's unique. This Bible is unique for no other reason than this, and it's adequate. One, it's the only book, the only book in the world that answers to the four most important questions of each and every human being. The first is, where did I come from? It's origin. No other book answers that. No philosophical book answers that. Science is afraid to address that. We come from a single cell amoeba. We think the world was a big bowl of soup, of jelly and whatnot, and lightning came. And it, it caused amino acids to form, and it, then came single-celled amoebas, and we evolved into a higher, more complex form. Really? Where do you find that in nature? When has something so complex as the human body ever evolved from something less complex? It's always been the opposite. It's always been from complexity going to simplicity. It's going from birth to death. It's decomposition. Never the other way around. Come on, follow the science. Amen. You, hey, listen, the Bible is, is good science. Faith is great science. It's a whole lot better than the scientists are using today. And truthfully, even when you look at evolution, my word, if they really apply scientific method, they'd come to the same conclusion we have arrived at, and that is there's one God, and he created us. But this Bible answers that one first most important question, where do I come from? What is my origin? Then the second question is, why am I here? Meaning, what is my life? That's, that's the second question. What is my meaning, my purpose for existence? The Bible answers that. All things were created for Him, amen, and for His pleasure. We've got an eternal destiny. We've got an invitation to spend eternity with Him in a life much more superior than down here. Jesus said, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Hallelujah. This life down here, it doesn't give it to you more abundantly. It takes it out of you. Only Jesus can give you life more abundantly and eternally. The third question is, how do I know the difference between good and evil? How do I know right and wrong? Morality. Only the Bible answers that question. There's no other book. Hallelujah. The Book of Mormon doesn't do it. The Koran doesn't do it. No other book does it. Just the Bible. And finally, the last question, what happens to me when I die? What's my destiny? Only the Bible answers those four questions. And only the Bible answers it accurately and answers it satisfactorily. And we can see that its message is powerful because it has an effect on the hearts that receive it and has the power to change them as it changed you and I. The Bible. Hallelujah. I want to see revival, don't you? I want to see a revival of the Word. You know that old song? Mike knows it. Oh, the way to have a revival is to pray and to read your Bible. Let Put your feelings on the shelf. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the best way to have a revival. Hallelujah. You know it? <laughs> well... Mm -hmm. oh, give me a key and I'll follow it. <laughs> oh, the way to have a revival is to read, pray, and to read your Bible. Put your feelings on the shelf. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way to have a revival.
Sister Swisher, remember that? Looks like it's you and me. Praise God. See what I learned from Brother Sister Switzer. Hallelujah. Praise God. It's the truth anyhow. I love this word. I love this Bible. It's quicker, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's a discerner of the thoughts and hearts of man. I'm telling you, nothing like it. Praise God. Come on, sing me another song. Give, sing me a happy song. Come on, Brother Mike. Sing me something happy.